Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview, introducing you to archaeologists and historians all too often hidden behind the scenes and finding out what they're up to while the world isn't watching. Today we're talking with archaeologist Sue Greeny, senior properties historian with English Heritage, editor of Past, the newsletter of the Prehistoric Society, and the main reason we wanted to get her on, Sue is the author of a fantastic piece of research on the Megahenge complex of Mount Pleasant in Dorset. It's always fascinating to hear Sue talk about her work. Hope you enjoy it. Sue, hi. Thank you so much for joining us. How, is you, how are you doing? And where are you? Don't even know where you are at the moment. Yes. Good true. afternoon. I'm in my house in Bristol, where it is a particularly hot and sunny day, but nicely indoors in the shade. As long as you're in the shade. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, um, do you know what? Our, our interviews always start off with the same question, because everybody wants to know, uh, what is it that actually started you off? What started your passion for archaeology in the first place? I think it was at primary school. I remember being about seven years old and saying to my mum one day, I want to be an archaeologist. And at the time, I'm not sure she... I think she knew what that was, but I think a lot of my schoolmates didn't. Um, I was very lucky. I had a primary school teacher who um, taught us by theme. So we did the Vikings and we did the Normans and we did the ancient Egyptians. I remember being fascinated by all of these particular, you know, historical periods. But then yeah. one day I remember seeing a picture of somebody in a trench and it, it was, must have been in some textbook or kids book or something. Picture of somebody in a trench with, with a brief description of what an archaeologist did. And I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. Uh, and I've never changed my mind since. So, um, yeah. Age yeah. seven, that's amazing. Age seven, yeah. What was the journey from that? I mean, how did you acquire your first skills? Where was the first dig? How did you get to get to university? And, and so, what was the um, what was the path through the, to? Yeah. My parents were very encouraging, and um, mm. I enrolled in my local yak, my young archaeology club. I was mm. a a yak member mm. in my kind of early teenage years, and when I got to about fourteen. Uh, I did work experience where you go off for a couple of weeks from school and spend time in the real world. And I went and did work experience with Northamptonshire Archaeology, who were the county unit at the time. I did two weeks with them uh, working on a uh, deserted medieval village site up near Rugby. Absolutely loved it. Thought the people were brilliant. Just loved the work. Yeah. They, I was only 14, but in those days you could go and work on a commercial site yeah. for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I went back for a couple of weeks in my summer as a volunteer. And from there on, I just was hooked really on the fieldwork side of it. So yeah. each summer I went and did various different kind of student and volunteer digs. I worked, um, my local site was Piddington Roman Villa, uh, which is a community excavation uh, in Northamptonshire, which is where I grew up. Uh, lovely Roman Villa. I remember discovering um, a beautiful uh, little copper, I think it was copper alloy ear scoop from the bathhouse there. And it was just one of those objects that kind of pinged out the ground as you were traveling along. So a really lovely discovery and not even knowing what I thought it was a tent peg at first, you know, <laughs> it looks well, so modern and so clean. I was yeah. like, what is this? And I took it and they say, oh, this is very exciting. You found this, you know, piece of Roman toiletry um, tool. So, uh, yeah. And then I signed up to go to Sedgeford, which is the sharp dig Sedgeford Historical and Archaeological Research Project in North Norfolk, not far from Hunstanton, which again was a kind of community led training dig um and i went there i signed up for two weeks when i was about i think i must have been about 16 or so went off on my own two weeks camping 
And I ran, remember ringing my mum and dad from the payphone in the pub and saying, can I stay longer? Can I use some of my savings from my paper round yeah. to stay longer for another week? Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, that site was a big part of my life for two or three years going and excavating in the summers. And in between my first and second year of university, they asked me back to be a supervisor there for the full season. So that was right. an eight week, eight weeks living in the field, digging the field, training others, kind of you know, live, living and breathing archaeology for yeah. Uh, yeah. the whole summer. So that was a really good experience um, in getting me kind of a uh, good excavator, you know, mm. trained, working alongside people who'd been trained at a variety of other universities and had great skills. So, um, mm. so by the time I got to university, I went to Sheffield. Yep. Sadly, just announced they're going to close the department oh, there. I know. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I went to Sheffield in 2001. Um, and did uh, an archaeology and prehistory degree. Um, I particularly chose Sheffield because it had a picture of South Uist of Neil Tebridis on the front okay. cover of their yeah. prospectus. And it made, th- made me think, oh, imagine going out <laughs> to dig on the Tebridis. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. So that and the fact that I just loved Sheffield. It seemed such a friendly city. It was in the north. It was cheap. Um, you know, it just it felt right. It felt very friendly yeah. going there. So, yeah, I had a very happy three years at Sheffield University, learning, learning all the theory, learning all the prehistory, you know, being taught by some really inspiring people, including Mike Parker Pearson, uh, John Barrett, uh, Marek yeah. Svelable, um, Robin Dannel, uh, Maureen Carroll, just some really, you know, people who were just really inspiring, enthusiastic and leading their own really exciting research uh, projects. Um, so, yeah, it, w- it was a good time to be at Sheffield, I think. Yeah. And without, did, did you, you later went on to Oxford. That's right, that right. Yeah. Yeah. But going back, though, I'm talking about the your mentors. Uh, have they you know, their uh, disciplines, uh, their particular interests, you know, really influenced your, inf- uh, you know, the directions that you went in. So, To a certain extent, yes. So Mike Parker Pearson was my personal tutor at Sheffield. Oh, right. And yeah. um, he was very inspiring, you know, very, you know, you can't help be engaged in archaeology if you're being taught yeah, by yeah. somebody like Mike. Mm. Um, and I remember him setting us an essay question on the Amesbury Archer, which had only recently been discovered at that point. Uh, And what he was trying to get out of the students was his idea for the Beaker People Project, which was this project to look at the isotopes of Beaker burials from across Mm. um, Britain and Ireland to see whether any of them were um, immigrants from the continent. Um, Mm. And I remember doing this essay and thinking, what is he trying to get at here? I know he's trying to get at something beyond where I could get to as a student. So uh, I remember him setting that and it was a bit of a challenge to see if we could come up with the same project that he'd come up with, which is a bit of a hard task for an undergraduate student. But yeah, (laughs) Beaker Burials, the Neolithic Monuments. I mean, we went on annual trips to Stonehenge and Avebury with Mike Parker Pearson Mm. or John Barrett. So got two sides of a kind of interesting story there. But also in my later years at Sheffield, I was taught a lot by Mark Edmonds, who... um, was uh, obviously a very strong landscape archaeologist and uh, taught us a huge amount about kind of looking at landscapes, investigating landscapes. Um, And at the time, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, was doing the MA in landscape archaeology with Mark Edmonds. He was in the year above me. And I used to try and get in on their weekend field trip so every every week they went on a field trip out to the peak district usually or further afield yeah. and on the in the pub on the friday night i used to say can i come along can i come along tomorrow and he'd be like oh yeah if you turn up at the minibus you can come so trips out to kind of flag fern and various sites in the peak district chatsworth and uh, all the prehistoric sites you know that was really 
amazing opportunity as well. So yeah, learned a lot from yeah. from Mark and his way of approaching archaeology. Living Fantastic. the dream, so living the dream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you've worked with English heritage for a long time now, haven't you? Uh, so, number one, what what does it mean to you to have Stonehenge as a kind of constant place of work? Are, are you still enthralled by it, or has it kind of become normal? still enthralls me um i've been with english heritage for 16 years but i haven't worked directly with stonehenge for all of that time it was only from about 2009 onwards so for about 10 11 years now that i've been really focused on stonehenge before that mm. i was working on properties that we look after all across the country everything well i was working specifically on our free and unstaffed sites so all mm. those small little gems that everyone forgets about all those long barrows and dolmens all those stone circles and also medieval monasteries, medieval castles. So I learned in my first few years at English Heritage a huge amount about things I didn't know. So yeah, medieval yeah. stuff, you know, churches, how churches are laid out, how monasteries are laid out, what to look for at particular castle sites, how to interpret them and do reconstructions, how to write interpretive text, you know, how to write exhibition type text um, and how to research, you know, these state guardianship monuments using all the kind of tools available to us. So that was a really good grounding. And I kind of, so I stepped away from prehistory, which was really my specialism at university and is, mm -hmm. is again now. Um, but then in 2009, the Stonehenge Visitor Centre project came back on board yep. and they were looking for somebody to join the team to really be the archaeologist and, um, you know, expert on developing all of the content for the new exhibition, the new guidebook, mm -hmm. landscape interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. So I joined the team at that point. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, yes, I'm back, back with prehistory. This is this is the stuff cool. I really enjoy getting my teeth into. You know, not yeah. nice to go and visit a medieval castle and lovely to think about a monastery, but really prehistory is, is the kind of exciting stuff, isn't it? So, um, yeah. yeah, so immersed myself in Stonehenge really for a, a, a very intense series of years in the lead up to the opening of the Visitor Centre in 2013. So about four years spent um, putting the huge Heritage Lottery Fund bid in, developing all of the content, you know, working with all of the creative, brilliant people who were making our films and our models, uh, doing the Neolithic Houses project at Stonehenge. So sort of overseeing the replica houses that we built there. Really intent, really good, really great experience. But I kind of went from very small free sites where there might be one panel to, you know, the opposite, <laughs> yeah. Stonehenge, yeah. you know, International World Heritage Site. Uh, so that was a, a fairly steep learning curve, really. Yeah. Do you know what? There's uh, It's an interest to us, you know, that thing between p sites that are not looked after uh, or not paid for, yeah. you know, and places that do have a visitor centre. And there's a, there's a, uh, a cusp between the two. It's a very s strange area where people have access, but they're, they're not managed. And at what point uh, a, a monument becomes in need of help in order to prevent it from, you know, going under for, from uh, from the weight uh, of that. But I don't suppose that's anything that you're concerned with any more uh, in your present role yeah no i it? still i still do write interpretation um for right. free our free sites i spent a couple of weeks ago, i went up to nine ladies stone circle and arbor low oh, in the yeah. peak district to have a look with a colleague at what we can do to improve the interpretation there so i still do pick up free sites um yeah. and actually they're the best ones really they're lovely <laughs> and they're in beautiful out of the way places and they you know yes. people love them for what they are they're not mm. places where you have to buy a ticket and 
go through the gift shop or anything like that. They are just what they are. So in mm. some ways, they're my favourite sites to deal with. They're just small and self-contained. Okay. Um, but they, yeah, it's um, it's a funny quirk of history how English heritage have come by its state monuments. Mm. So yeah. it's a very strange, eclectic mix of things that went on the 1882 schedule in the very first schedule of ancient well, monuments. Uh, nine ladies was one of the it, first. Nine ladies was, yes, yes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of those were prehistoric um, yeah. in that first tranche. And then ones that have been kind of acquired or donated, or it, it's, uh, it's a very slightly strange ragtag of bag of sites we've got so by mm. far not always the most important or the most significant but ones that were uh, they could persuade the owners to put mm. into state guardianship a lot of the time mm. Um, mm. but obviously there are some jewels in that crown and Stonehenge is one of those although we have some pretty impressive other prehistoric sites too Maiden Castle and Castle Rig and you know all these amazing sites yeah, really yeah. so we'd all like a clearer view of uh, Mount Pleasant and your uh, doctorate research there. One thing, I mean, working at Mount Pleasant, and we should explain uh, Mount Pleasant is a mega henge complex uh, uh, near, well, very near Dorchester. Um, And uh, so your work there, how did you get to uh, be working at Mount Pleasant? You know, was it something that you drove towards and saw an opening and so I'm going to do that? And, uh, uh, you know, what fascinated you in the first place to take you there? Well, the work at Mount Pleasant is all part of my PhD. So my PhD research, I am undertaking part time at Cardiff University alongside my job at English Heritage. And I was looking at monument complexes. So these are clusters or groups of monuments that seem to kind of emerge in particular places. And the area around Stonehenge is one of those where you have not just Stonehenge, but lots of other important monuments, some of which are still visible today, some of which are now lost. Um, And what I wanted to do is try and contribute to to this kind of uh, story of complexes. And um, looking around, Mm. uh, there was one particular complex that had been really well investigated in um, the 1960s and 1970s, but really no one had gone back since. And it was a sort of untapped um, archive, really. So um, I decided that it would be a great idea as part of my PhD research to get together a new and accurate chronology for the Dorchester complex, which includes the Mount Pleasant Henge. So um, that was the sort of starting point was kind of trying to fill a gap really in our knowledge and trying to produce another example of a monument complex where we've got really good evidence for the chronology about how that complex develops and emerges and changes over time and mapping that. So part of my PhD is sort of mapping in detail, both chronologically and geographically, how these complexes develop and emerge and change Mm. over time. Um, and Mount Pleasant had been excavated um, in 1970 by Geoffrey Rainwright, and he had published beautiful monograph. At the same time, he was excavating other mega henges at Marden and at Dungton Walls to the north near Stonehenge. Um, but no one had gone back since. The site had not been excavated since. It was, yeah. it, it was, and it's still sadly under the plough. It's a fairly neglected and forgotten example of one of these mega henges because the earthworks have completely disappeared they've been plowed out you can really only identify the monument from 
aerial photographs and geophysical survey. Um, and so I thought, well, this is a great example of one. No one's no one's working on this. No one's doing any research yeah. on this. Let's see if we can go back to the archive and and see what we can what we can date basically so the mm-hmm. idea was to try and produce some more accurate dating and mount pleasant is a really interesting monument because it's got a number of different components there's the henge itself the, the bank and the ditch which surround this sort of hilltops enormous site huge banks and ditches but then it also has a concentric timber monument in the middle which is originally named as named as site four it's a very romantic name but that's what we still call it site four um, and also a, a timber palisade, um, a sort of fence line of large posts that ran around the inside of the Henge Bank. And also a barrow called the Conquer Barrow, which sits just at the side on top of, it seems, the Henge Bank. So all these different components might be the same dates, might be vastly different dates. And the kind of accepted chronology was really based on what Jeff had done in 1970. Yeah. Um, and although radiocarbon dates were used at the time, they had huge error ranges and they weren't necessarily yeah. the samples that we would select today to um, get the best idea of when these different events had occurred. So I went to the archive, which is kept by Dorset County Museum in Dorchester, and just had a look to see what there was, see if there was, see if it had been good records, see if there were labels on all the finds still. And actually, the first thing I looked at was animal bones, because one of the things you would ideally want to date would be some nice articulated animal bones from the very bottom of a ditch, for example. And I was really disappointed because I opened up the boxes and they were just a jumble. There were all the bones had been accumulated into just periods. So there was a Neolithic box and there was a Bronze Age box and there were lots of Iron Age boxes. And all of the contexts were lost. All the bags were there with their numbers on, but they'd been emptied. So there's no way you can reunite the bones with the bags that they came from, even though they've kept the bags. At some point between now and 1970, someone had gone through and so they, they were completely unsuitable for dating it much as i tried i could not match up any of the records published publications with what there was but there were very good antler picks and those were all individually labeled and marked and had very good uh evidence for where they'd come from and there was masses and masses of charcoal um so charcoal from the posts for example of this palisade charcoal from Mm. underneath the henge bank lots of really good samples so and also some uh what turned out to be much later iron age um, burials that came from the ditch, which we dated yeah. as well. So we were able to get a really good selection of samples. And, and I have to say the we in this is myself and Peter Marshall, who yeah. is the Historic England uh, scientific dating expert. And um, I, I was able to help, have his help because my PhD is funded through something called doctoral training partnerships, which are done in association with non-university bodies. And English Heritage slash Historic England, which was also the organisation I was working for, basically said they would help me a bit with training um, and with some funding for the dates in order to kind of train me up um, and be able to do this really carbon dating type project. So, yeah, so Mount Pleasant was the first monument that we tackled as part of that Dorchester complex. Um, And we've now published the paper last year on on the Mm -hmm. results from that. Um, And th- but there's more in the pipeline. So um, we have actually dated samples from all of the major monuments in the Dorchester yeah. complex. So that includes uh, a sort of early henge or proto henge called flagstones, um, yeah. another huge timber enclosure known as Greyhound Yard after the site where it was first identified under the town of Dorchester, mm-hmm. and the really unusual henge monument of Monbury Rings, which is yeah. 
a very strange monument, yeah. which is still standing today. Yeah. And you can go and visit the earthworks. Um, but the ditch of which had these enormously deep shafts, about 45 of yes. them, dug yes. down metres and metres and metres into the chalk with all kinds of things stuffed into them. So we've been able to date all of those major monuments and build up a really detailed chronology for that complex as a whole. Yeah. Well, really I, don't, I don't think there's time to sort of describe that all here. So did, did, was it, uh, am I getting this right? There's majorly uh, an archival research uh, project. You weren't able to go out and get your hands dirty and get the trowel out. There was no so need. There was no need. No need. I mean, all of these sites were beautifully excavated. Some of the 1970s yeah. and 80s work is absolutely stunning. You know, all the photographic records are there, all the context sheets are there. It's the, going through the archive is a pleasure and all yeah. of the finds are there. So, you know, there's no need to go and, in effect, sure. damage more of the site yeah, yeah. or do an expensive excavation when there's this sort of material sitting in the archive. And uh, Dorset County Museum were very kind. You know, they gave us permission to sample pretty much as much as we wanted, really. So they were they were very happy to let us do that with, and, and kind of be able to tell more stories from their own archive. Mm. Whilst being hugely frustrating at the same time. <laughs> Do you do you want to get out with your trowel? Uh, I do a bit, um, but actually, I kind of find it fascinating that you can ask such big, major questions and just use yeah. the archive to get yeah. there. I mean, yes, mm. getting a trowel out would be exciting, but at Mount Pleasant, you need a big JCB as well. Um, it would be a major, major project to excavate, for example, a portion of that henge ditch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's a, I mean that's a huge operation. As a PhD student, you are not you do not have the funds or the time or the ability to kind sure. of do that kind of level. Mm -hmm. thing so actually going back to the archive choosing things for radiocarbon dating or you know other scientific analysis whether that be looking at pottery residues mm -hmm. or looking at ancient dna they're perfect subjects for a phd level student to get their hands on yeah. because they you know they're 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 bounded and, and small so long story short though i mean what's the emerging picture for you um from mount pleasant from the chronology and the the, com the, the whole complex you know? At Mount Apart Pleasant, just it, Mount Pleasant itself, yeah. At Mount Pleasant, it was originally thought that um, the monument was built over a very long time period, so that the henge was built sometime in the late Neolithic, and then the palisade, this wooden timber palisade, was added much later in the early Bronze Age. But what the dating that we've done has shown is that they're pretty much all the same date. So they all come out. Each component of the monument was built quite quickly in succession um, and they're all roughly 2500 bc so there's a there's a big frenzy of building at, at that point the ditch around site four it has a little circular ditch was a little bit later but that's quite normal to find a kind of yeah. added ditch to some of these kind of earlier timber or stone monuments and the palisade was also very slightly later than the henge big henge ditch and bank itself but all within a space of about 125 years for every mm -hmm. single component to be built so this was a monument that was built very uh, enormous monument but then very rapidly you know by the children or the grandchildren of the people who built the original yeah. monument they yeah. were going back and altering it changing it altering the entrances building palisades adding bits and pieces to it so it was a, a monument that was kind of quite rapidly changing over time yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the uh, the chronology aside, are you any closer to uh, an interpretation that you're comfortable with? Particularly, you know, the the the, the timber site four. I'll call it site four. Yeah. Concentric timber yeah. circle. Yes. So site four is one of a kind of group of 
timber and sometimes they have stone component monuments um mm. site four actually has a little stone cove at the center of it as well as it being a timber structure so it's very similar to places like woodhenge um to the southern circle at durrington walls mm. for example mm. um and it has uh what's interesting about site four is it has these four little avenues that lead into it from mm. um each of the kind of cardinal directions in effect to the center um and it's it's one of a number of monuments that appear to be orientated specifically to particular directions. So if you plot all these different timber monuments, they all have sort of not precise alignments like Stonehenge, but they are generally yeah. orientated in a particular way. And Site 4 yeah. is very similar to that. So it's a, you know, it's a, if I had to tell you what, what Site 4, it's a timber temple. You know, it's one of those places where people are depositing lots of objects, pottery, animal bones, antler picks, and moving around the monument in particular sort of prescribed routes and depositing objects in particular parts of the monument. So it's a, you know, it's a temple of sorts where people are kind of adding offerings, uh, what those timber posts look like, you know, were they decorated, were they hung with objects, were they painted, um, who knows. But um, yeah, so the, I mean, Mount Pleasant is is in this class of mega henges, which seems to be uh, places where people were gathering in really large numbers and having these enormous feasts. Yeah. So similar to Darrington Walls, where we've also got evidence for midwinter feasting at Mount Pleasant, it's exactly the same. We don't, unfortunately, have the evidence for any houses like we have at Darrington Walls, but I suspect oh, they're really? there. Okay. They, I yeah. suspect they've either been ploughed or they haven't yet mm. been discovered. Um, mm. So that they, it's a big settlement and gathering site that's really significant um, mm. in around 2500 BC. Yeah. So we we tend to regard I mean th these mega henges you know we and and the complexes around them we you know we regard them as being hugely important but so much has been lost between towns and cities that have just carried on developing over the thousands of years so do you think it's more likely that the country was more uniformly covered by these kind of uh, monuments and settlements or do you think that they were quite distinct and uh, spread apart it's a good question we've obviously lost a lot um but i would say that at dorchester it's a really good example because there was a, a roman town built over the top of this neolithic monument complex yeah. and then that roman town became a medieval town and then it became the modern city of dorchester so it's had a huge oh. amount of building and construction and work the waitrose car park in a way and a waitrose <laughs> car park yes the yes. most exciting uh, red circles of concrete in the waitrose car yeah. park that show you the position of the greyhound yard palisaded enclosure yeah um so you know and those have been found during excavations in the 70s they were they were found during you know redevelopment for shopping centers and housing and etc in in the middle so uh, i have a feeling that if there was a complete monument complex hidden under a city somewhere we would have found some sign of it so although we've lost a lot and we may have m many new monuments to discover i do feel that the kind of pattern of complexes that we've got the major complexes is is pretty correct yeah, I'm happy to be happy to be corrected in a few years' time when someone finds something <laughs> very exciting in a place we've never looked. But um, yeah, I think I think we're we're pretty firm on 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 where the major sites are. Mm. Okay, because we've been fascinated by the ubiquity of henge-like structures all over the place. You know, we, it's only recently we started looking at the continent and seeing, oh my goodness, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, th this was a a, a thing. Uh, uh, a hengeform or a you know the earth and the the bank and ditch enclosure was it serving the same purpose all over the place or were there different purposes because mm. you know yeah there's a certain you know, is it form um, follows function and all that there's a certain thing, yeah. uh 
fashion, I guess you'd call it, for enclosing places yeah. within boundaries of earth and and timber. And yes. and they are often circular, not always perfectly circular, but mm. um, this hinging of sites, you've probably heard the term hinging, which is a term you've probably talked about before. Yeah, But that's quite nice because at Durrington, for example, we have this hinge being built as the kind of final stage of this site. So they're, they're sort of monumentalizing and marking out this special place where lots of things have already happened. And I suspect Mount Pleasant may be the same, although we don't have direct evidence for kind of anything mm. before the earth bank and ditch at the moment. So from the mm. current excavations. Um, mm. So yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's about this kind of keeping in and keeping out and creating boundaries around special places and whether it's about keeping in and keeping out people, you know, only certain people can go within these spaces or, or only certain things can happen inside these bounded spaces or whether it's about, you know, people have written about whether it's the idea about keeping these powerful places separate from the everyday world, keeping spirits inside, keeping dangerous, you know, um, activities or beings in this enclosed space. It's different. It's special. It's set aside. It's, um, mm. So, yeah, that, that's how we, we probably ought to think about them is this demarcating a special place. Mm -hmm. So any good interpretations of the actual timber structures themselves, these concentric rings of posts? Because there's a lot of contention around those. Yeah, so originally, um, well, perhaps the first one to be excavated was Maud Cunnington's Woodhenge, um, and she suggested it was a freestanding timber structure. But then later on, Stuart Piggott and many others said, oh, no, of course, it's got to have a roof on top. This is some sort of communal hall or building. I think the consensus has swung back towards uh, Maud's ideas, um, particularly with Mike Pitts's excavations at the Sanctuary, which is another of these timber monuments near mm -hmm. Avebury, yeah. um, where he found that one of at least one of the timber posts that he excavated had been replaced a number of times in the same place. Um, yeah. So you're not going to be replacing individual posts if you've got a, a roof up there. And it does seem that they, these are places that people are moving between and around rather than them being a structure or a roofed building as such. They're far too they're overly complex, really. You could build a much simpler structure if you wanted to. Um, so, yeah, they, they do seem to be freestanding. There are related monuments that we call now square in circle monuments, which are these mm -hmm. um, settings of four socking great posts surrounded by a fence, of which we've got a couple at Durrington. Um, the, the site for it, Mount Pleasant, is sort of based on it loosely. Um, there are many others across the whole of um, Britain and Ireland. But these seem to be a kind of in between a kind of domestic house structure and these really monumental concentric timber structures. They're sort of somewhere in between. So, you know, are those temples or are they actually buildings with four posts going up to the sky out of the roof or something? So there's a there's a continuum, mm. I guess, of architecture from small domestic buildings right the way through to these concentric monuments. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, the only thing, you know, the only thing I would say is that they're, they're temples. Their, their religious structures, their their ritual structures, um, their places where people, I guess, c communed with their gods or deities or you know whatever their religious beliefs were, which we're very far from ever being able to say for certain. This is mm. where, this is where important yeah. ritual stuff happens. <laughs> mm. I know we, we've we've frozen it forever in time in uh, standing with stones. We put a roof on it, <laughs> ah. so we you know. <laughs> It's possible. Uh, I think it's that, possible. that was the thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's the trouble, isn't it? Once you put something down, you 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 stick your uh, your opinion. Uh, you, you 
you know, hang your picture on the wall, as it were, and it's uh, we, there for all yeah, time. We followed the opinions of uh, uh, of people yeah. who knew more than we did. So yeah, and there's <laughs> so, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We, we, our reconstructions oh. change, and our ideas change all of the time. So we're Absolutely. always kind of learning things. That's a, I, lots of my job is is commissioning reconstructions and and creating yeah. artwork for interpretation exhibitions, and it's always it's, the most challenging thing to do is to say, oh, well, what exactly. do I think? Isn't it a hard yeah. thing because it's so hard once it, you you you're not setting things in concrete exactly but um the the visual interpretation has to be made yeah and uh being visual creatures once we see something a certain way that gets tends to get the the fixed idea so uh yeah i see there's a lot of people um sticking roofs on well not a lot of people but people have been sticking roofs on stonehenge it's yes yeah that does pop <laughs> up every now and again some classic uh, yes. newspaper articles but i think it looked like this yeah. not a huge it's amount, amount of, amount of work that put into uh, such things as well isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah yeah but i mean i'd say a roof on um on Woodhenge is a lot more plausible than a roof on Stonehenge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but if you think that Stonehenge is kind of a stone version of these timber monuments, these timber structures, it's sort of, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's it's possible they had lintels, it's possibly that they had joints and were worked and shaped in the same way as Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, that's easier for me to imagine than a roofed structure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, do you know what? It is on that line, although, you know, I don't um, favour necessarily the, the roofed uh, idea. <laughs> it always seems a bit of overkill that the mortise and tenon in the uh, in the trilithons, it's a bit overkill unless you expect some kind of lateral force to be applied to the uh, Yeah, to the, the, the whole monument is completely mm. over-engineered. There's, there's a lot of... Um, <laughs> excess yeah. it going into it deliberately so yeah. probably you know those those joints are not needed you could just stick the stones on top of each other if you wanted to they might not last hundreds and hundreds of years but if you just want to make a shape you don't have to create those joints and those slotted together things and you know the fact that the outer circle was completely level even though the land is not that, that there is a lot of overthinking and over engineering going into this probably there is both. a question mark <laughs> over that for sure actually Talking of question marks, um, if you had the opportunity, Sue, <laughs> to uh, answer, solve one burning question that you have about the Neolithic or prehistory in general, what's the question and where would you go back to in time to solve it? I would go back to about 2400 BC, so a bit after these massive monuments are being built maybe silbury hill is still being built and i'd watch the interaction between new people coming to britain from the continent with their fancy new beaker pots and their different language (laughs) and their other religious beliefs and just see what it was like to to see that meeting of people and they work out why those people were coming what the people here thought about them and how everything changed because at that point Mm -hmm everything does change you know all the major monument construction comes to a halt you've got people change the way they bury their dead they change the type of pottery they're using they've got new metals Mm. copper gold later bronze for the first time and it's it's a huge sea change 
there's some continuity. We know that people with beaker pots are still going back to monuments like Mount Pleasant and sticking their pots in the ground for a little bit of time. But there's really no continuity in terms of kind of there's no new major monuments constructed. So yeah. that re- that bit really interests me, that that kind of changeover, that turnover. And there's been some really interesting new work done or using ancient DNA to look at this particular question. Yeah. But we've got a big issue with it because we don't know what late Neolithic people were doing with their dead. Yeah. We assume that they're cremating them and we assume that they're sticking in them in the river or the sea because they're not showing up anywhere archaeologically. We've got a mm-hmm. few cremations from Stonehenge itself, but they're a little bit earlier. They're sort of 3000 yeah. BC. So what on earth are people doing with their dead? That means that they just don't show up. And that means mm-hmm. that we haven't got any ancient DNA from that late Neolithic yeah. period. But we do see a massive sea change with all of these new people arriving. So what happens there? What's the interaction between, is it conflict? Is it war? Do they get on? Is it gift exchange? Do they kind of, it, I, I imagine it's a bit like, it's, it's not as far, you know, it's 30 miles across the channel, but there is a huge change. Uh, yes. So yeah, I'd just love to be a fly on the wall, see that interaction taking place. Yes. It is so true, isn't it? When you look at uh, the amount of stuff that was uh, spreading around, whether it's, you know, the recent thing of finding uh, gold in Germany that uh, that, uh, probably came from Cornwall, that that sort of thing. And the recent thing of tin ingots being found in uh, Cyprus and Israel, I think, and Greece, that also, if they didn't come from Cornwall, they came from northern France. It's still this this massive interaction between peoples, isn't it? Which uh, Yeah, which so all starts just out. then. But just before, there's very few clues that show that people are crossing the channel. They, they probably were, but it just doesn't show up archaeologically. We haven't got, you know, it's not like you find, so the typical pottery of this period is grooved wear pottery. We don't have any grooved wear pottery from across the channel, yet it's in yeah. Ireland and Britain. So that yeah, these yeah. people are sharing ideas and styles across the Irish Sea, but not across the Channel. And yet, mm. and they're getting metals much earlier in, in places like northern France and Brittany. There's a delay then before it comes over the Channel. So what is it about that? <laughs> What's happening there? Yeah. It's kind of uh, intriguing. It is. So many mysteries. So many <laughs> mysteries. I'll share your time machine. well something i wanted to ask you was um because we we saw that uh, you said you're you're off on holiday soon you're going to aaron aren't you yes is that has that got anything to do with the lidar results of uh, the uh was it ten thousand previously unknown archaeological sites that have that have thrown up in those uh, scans? No, it was, it's somewhere I've wanted to go for a long time. There's the amazing Macrimore stone circles yeah. there, which I have read about and drawn, um, but I've never had the chance to visit. There is the new cursus that they have recently found yes. on Aaron, which does yes. intrigue me. I watched a talk by Angela Gannon about that a few months ago, the Neolithic Studies Group conference. Um, but I think it's pretty difficult to find in an upland area, so I'm not sure I'll be trekking off to find it without some guide. Uh, but no, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's also to go to... Um, bits of Argyle and up to Kilmartin because I visited Kilmartin Glen oh, ooh, 10 years ago now uh, uh, with a kind of work colleague as a, a sort of pre-visit when we were developing Stonehenge but I would absolutely love to go back with proper time to go and see some of the amazing rock art there um, yeah. uh, and see some of the tombs there too so yeah there, there's a there's a few places on my list although my husband is 
was trained as an archaeologist and worked as an archaeologist for many years, but he will not let me do archaeology every day of the holiday. So there will be some <laughs> other things mixed in as well. <laughs> oh, well, our, cross, our, our paths may cross. We're passing through uh, Kilmartin Glen in ah, September. Who knows? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yes, we are. It, well, Scotland has been a big thing for you. I mean, the Ring of yeah. Brodga. Yeah. Yeah, so I have been lucky enough to, well, I I visited Orkney first when I was on just a holiday, just one of those, you know, got to go and see all these amazing sites. But then I went back, uh, I've been back for two seasons to go and excavate at the Nessa Brodga, just because, I mean, who wouldn't want to go? I mean, it's such an amazing Absolutely. site to go and have a chance to take part in. And also my PhD was looking at uh, the, the Stennis Brodga complex of monuments. So I wanted to try and understand um, a bit more about, you know, how it all fitted together and and what the discoveries were there. So, yeah, so I, I dug, I've dug a few times, not for a couple of years now, sadly, but with the Nessa Brodga team, which has just been absolutely amazing. And um, oh. when I was at university, I dug with Mike Parker Pearson at Clad Hallen, which is the um, Bronze Age roundhouses site uh, on South Uist, which again was an extraordinary experience, kind of digging in sand dunes to find Bronze Age structures. Sure. Um, so yeah, Scotland, yeah. the islands of Scotland particularly, do do hold quite a, a place for me as a kind of you know just amazing places to visit. Really, it's true. There is something we were talking about this recently, actually, with um, uh, with uh, Alison Sheridan and uh, and Lucy at the uh, at the Callanish. Uh, centre that uh, that there is something so profound about some of these extraordinary places that are on tiny islands. You know, it, it's almost incongruous, really, that these massive and complex structures were were just put in these tiny, out of the way places. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to think about why that might be the case. I mean. I think they probably weren't so out of the way at the time. I think they were kind of probably quite nodal in terms of sea routes and, you know, tidal routes and things like When I was on Orkney last, I met a couple who had sailed to Orkney from Cardiff on, in their own boat. And they'd come up the west coast of Scotland mm. and gone through all of the islands and had a, a fabulous time. They said, it's just very easy because you're always within sight of different harbours and different islands. You can work your way up the west coast right up to Orkney you know, with not that much skill, really, you know, a bit of skill, but, you know, mm. so for prehistoric people, it would have been the same. They would have been very used to get, yeah. jumping in a boat and crossing over the Irish Sea, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in some ways, <laughs> although they're islands, that means they're kind of connected to lots of different places yeah, and yeah. different people, which means they become these sort of centres. Oh, glad you said that, because it's a really good uh, perspective <laughs> to look at things through, because all when we look at Orkney and th think of the that horrible stretch between the mainland Scotland and, and Orkney and think, how are you going to get across that? It's bad enough on a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> but don't, don't we have this, uh, one of our, our big weaknesses, yeah. I think, is that we, we still look at the past through our modern eyes. So we look at things, oh, that looks incredibly difficult. Well, probably wasn't. Um, mm. And I read, I wish I could remember who'd written it. I really don't. But I read an article a little while ago of somebody uh, explaining how if you've got a good knowledge of uh, of the sea, that to actually go from Scotland right the way down to the south coast would have been an awful lot safer 
than trying to make the same journey on land where not only have you got wild animals that you've probably got to be worried about, you've also got uh, random brigands and whoever else might want what you're carrying with you and all of that. So you can see that, yeah, okay, there is a solid reason why people would have been using the water all the time. But mm. nevertheless, when you look at the distances they travelled in what we would regard as pretty primitive boats, it's mm. still an extraordinary feat, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And don't forget that, obviously, inland, masses of woodland, lots and lots of trees, yeah. and presumably, you know, pathways and trackways, but but tricky to, you know, navigate and, and difficult to, to find your way all the way. I think coastlines yeah. would have been a lot easier. Yeah, might, A I lot just... easier to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, I come to think of it. Yeah. My um, undergraduate dissertation was on rock art in Southwest Ireland, mm. and I called that the paper that came out of that routeways and seaways because uh, so much of the rock art. But uh, in this was in the peninsulas. This was on the Dingle Peninsula in Southwest Ireland. Yeah. But all those peninsulas that stick out into the sea, it's much much easier to cross from one peninsula to the other by boat than it is to cross a peninsula by going over a mountain range. So the connections sure. are very much, you know, along the lowland coasts and across the sea yeah. rather than yeah. across the main mainland as we might might think of today. Oh, we'll have to have further conversations about that. That's a really yeah. <laughs> um perspective we say anyway apart from setting off to uh, uh Aaron in and uh, Kilmartin in September what does the immediate future hold for you soon what's, uh, what's next on the getting horizon? my phd finished yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um yes. actually i booked that trip as a kind of celebrating finishing so that means i have to do it now so i'm not far off i need to just finish writing my discussion chapter which is obviously the the trickiest chapter of all to write um and, yeah. and just get it in really so yeah it's been it's been a, a labor of love but i have um i've been doing it part-time um which is always tricky because you know you're juggling various things i think actually doing a full-time phd is a much easier thing to do um but but i thoroughly i'm still you know fascinated by it i think some people get to the end of their phd and they think oh i'm completely bored with whatever subject it is that i've tackled yeah. but to me i mean yeah. there's just tons and tons more questions more research more projects to do so in some ways i just want to get the phd in so that i can move on and do lots of other things yeah, one more question before we come to the end of this conversation. So it's a burning question, and that is, how do you manage to bend time? <laughs> warp time to do all you do? I think I you just know. do all of them slightly badly. That's... <laughs> You can ask my colleagues when I when I forget something or I I don't meet their deadlines that I don't necessarily do all of the things I do with a um, with a plum, That's for sure. That can't be true. It can't be true. It's arguably the best answer we've had from anybody. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the truth will remain a mystery for the time being. Uh, yeah, anyway. I think uh, there's this constant thing, isn't it? The, the the best people have imposter syndrome all the time. It's that kind of thing as well. Uh, yeah, I think pe people tend to tell me if ask a busy if you want something done, yeah. ask a busy person. So that that's me. Yeah, I do so get yeah. to, you know, a lot of that's people come to me so for things. True, so, so yeah, oh, <laughs> I also well, take well, I can't say no to things often. I think that's the trouble with having archaeology as a job and a passion in that you know you're always interested in it. So you either always want to tell other people about it or do the research or find you know. So it's not like to me a nine to five job that I'm glad to get rid of at the mm. end of the day. So yeah. that's yes. that's probably why I spend more time 
thinking yeah. and doing it it than than normal <laughs> passion passion counts for a lot yeah. yes we we does. so so resonate with that because yeah. uh, you know it's uh, a it's a bit like us, really. You know, this is our job. Is this work? We might work hard, but is it work? No, yeah, not really. Not so much. No, it's all good fun. So it's been fantastic talking to you. And as ever, uh, we could talk for a long time because there's so many avenues, you know, that mm. we'd like to you know, uh, dive down with you. But uh, for the time being, uh, we will uh, uh, say thank you very much indeed for the pleasure of talking to you. I uh, hope you enjoyed it Thank too. you for having me. I have, yeah. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. We've yeah, been looking yeah. forward to uh, chatting with you for a long time. So, uh, yeah. uh, yes. Thanks again. And um, we must do this again sometime. <laughs> Thank you. So goodbye to you. Um, bye-bye to our listeners Thank and watchers. Thank you for watching. See you again soon, folks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.